skinheads bowling, take them bowling. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Music, music everywhere, on your smartphone, on demand. From a cylinder next to the blender in your kitchen, on YouTube, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora. Great for us consumers. But please shed a tear for recording artists who are finding it ever harder to make a living in the world of streaming. Their foremost champion is perhaps David Lowry of the bands Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. Part-time lecturer, occasional quant, occasional angel investor, a PhD no less. He is ours for the hour. So hey, 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 stay with us. Sunday, November 10th at the National in Richmond, Virginia, Full Disclosure presents Not a Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the music. I interview the band, one of my favorites, on its 25 years of hustle. Then they perform a full concert, and all of it will be shot for a documentary pilot. It being November, you're pretty much getting a veritable turducken of content. Tickets are cheapest at the Nationals box office. Or you can visit notasurf.com. Sunday, November 10th, Surf on Full Disclosure Live in downtown RVA. Join us. Joining me in studio at Rainmaker, it's a pleasure in downtown Richmond, Virginia, in Shaco Bottom, is none other than David Lowry. You know him from the bands Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. He's lecturer of music business at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. He blogs at Tricordist, where he writes uh, about artist rights. He's testified on Capitol Hill. Sir, do you tap dance? No, no, I don't tap dance. So, <laughs> where do I even start with you? I mean, we were in conversation getting ready for this show, and you recently you you had an investment in the Guitar Exchange, which sold to Etsy. You help other artists produce. You're on Capitol Hill. What, what is what's the first hat that you wear? Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I was uh, one of the musicians. I was an angel investor or seed investor, actually, rather seed investor in uh, Reverb, which is the online part of Chicago Music Exchange, which recently sold to Etsy. Um, I think that's what we were we were briefly talking about. But that's, yeah, just kind of a, a random thing that <laughs> uh, happened to happen this fall. But um, yeah. So, I, you know, I have to timestamp something for you. I was in college. It was my senior year of college. And I think back to what was the first MP3 I had. And it was Everlong by the Foo Fighters in 1997. I don't know how some, some guy in the entryway got a CD burner or something like this. And that was the big reveal to me. And then in the workforce when we had Napster kind of at the turn of the century, how it completely changed the dynamic of, you know, I was untethered, unshackled to the $17 CD. Where were you? when you first saw the disruption that was about to hit the music industry? I was in Woodstock, New York. Actually, I don't remember this very clearly. I was in Woodstock, New York, and it was like 1997. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of musicians are actually, uh, because they work around computers to record their stuff, they're pretty savvy on networking and such. And we had set up a little network in this house out in the country, and uh bass player had his... I don't even think we had laptops. I think I think we had full-on computers, um, <laughs> those big bay bo- beige boxes that we used to use back then. You're getting a Dell, dude. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly the Dell uh, uh, era. Um, and the, our bass player goes, hey, check this out. I'm going to email you something. So I went and checked my email really quick, quick, and he'd sent me this file, and I was... 
what is this file? And it's, you know, it was the name of, it was a song called Surf Billy. And we had just done a, it was a working title for this track we had a rough mix of. And, you know, so I just sort of click on download the file. And it takes like 30 seconds for this file to download, right? And it's a music file. It's an MP3 file. And I start playing it. And it doesn't sound perfect, but I was like, wow. And he's walked in and kind of come, kind of come and stood in the doorway where I'm listening to this song. He goes, it's crazy, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, totally crazy. Like we could just transfer music, like, you know, a two and a half minute song in like 30 seconds, which nowadays would seem incredibly slow to download sure. like two and a half megabytes. And no or one had any yeah, attachment sizes on emails. Yeah. And uh, FTP linker. Yeah. We were like, wow, this this is really different. So I remember my first take on it was that uh, as this sort of evolved over the next year and a half, Napster hadn't started yet, but then um, July of 1999, I think Napster comes online and I'm just sort of looking at this go, well, this, you know, I was ambiguous about it. And in some ways, um, or ambivalent about it in some ways, because in some ways I thought, well, you know, obviously this is going to be a problem because now you can sort of mask, you know, scale copy CDs the way that we used to copy a couple of cassettes and hand them out to our friends or make a mixtape. But, you know, now we can kind of do this on an industrial scale. This is obviously going to change things. But at the same time, I thought that, well, maybe because we're we're suddenly disintermediate. We're suddenly disintermediated as musicians, whereby if we have the potential to sell our music directly to our fans, I thought the net result would be that we as artists would make more. And I mean, half of that's true in that um, there was a period, there was a quite a period, there's pretty long period in the early 2000s where. I feel like the music really was disintermediated and you had a lot of things become hits that would have never been hits, you know, sort of uh, artists could release records directly to their fans. Um, they could distribute live CDs. I remember we started just releasing our B-sides, you know, that didn't things that never really made it to sort of a commercial threshold because it didn't matter anymore. There was no... You know, you weren't trying to recoup fixed costs of pressing up CDs and such. But did you ever imagine if you could interpolate what, what the year 2019 or 2020 was going to look like? We don't really own music in mass anymore. We stream. And this idea that got me excited at the turn of the century was this, you know, there were the, those crude MP3 players that came out that you could have your entire life soundtrack in a kind of a handheld brick. That's even laughable now. Right, because what you get with Spotify or Apple Music is access to substantially what ninety eight percent of all the music that's ever been recorded in the modern era. Did you ever see that happening? Like there, there are a lot of bottlenecks that would have gotten in the way of that. Like, why would I want to deplete my data plan, or why would any uh, record label just give songs away for streaming? It's amazing how so many perfect things happened between Steve Jobs and and iTunes and everything for the record industry, the recording industry, to get disrupted and where it is today. Yeah, well, let's let's go back a little bit, Robin, yeah. because I think actually that's just a curious thing about the music industry is that I think it's it has at least the means of distribution and consumption of music. Uh, it 
it's constantly being disrupted, right? I mean, we could go back. I think it begins with the player piano and the radio follows on that. Jukeboxes were a weird revolutionary thing to help people consume music. When you look at it now, it's kind of it's kind of funny and quaint. But uh, since I started, uh, well, since Camper Van Beethoven started in 1983, five different formats have been the dominant form of how consumers consume music. It was vinyl at first in 1983. Then the cassette began to eclipse that because you could play the cassette in the car. It was sure. cheaper than vinyl. Uh, and then, of course, CD. These things were all out at, at the same time. But it, but since 1983, it was like vinyl was dominant. There was a period that cassette was dominant. Cassette was dominant a lot longer than people think it was I think till like almost 92 or something and then the CD takes over and then then you have both the illegal or the illegal and the legal um, distribution of mp3s you know first with things like uh, e-music and then Napster in its um, unlicensed form and then iTunes in its license well iTunes um, take me to iTunes yeah um, so but, then, but, but, but it was, just really quick what I was going to say about that and then streaming. So every seven, that's about seven years, years. per format. Right. You know what I mean? Of course, the CD is still around. Of course, vinyl is still around. But I mean, as being the dominant way that people consume music. So what's the leverage that Steve Jobs had, say, in the year 2002 and 2003? You're known as an Apple. You know, Apple is a computer company. It's on demand. It's made some great products. But nobody saw the iPod. And what the iPod would turn into. Why would the uh, recording artists and the labels kind of bow down before Steve Jobs? And well, I think because the, the alternative was that your music would continue to be uh, licensed through. Um, would the alternative was that your music would continue to be shared on unlicensed platforms? So, but they largely agreed to the ninety-nine cent price point. Some right. tracks were a buck thirty. I, I remember going back to the infancy of right. of iTunes. Right, it was a closed. You're getting a, a, a you know great fidelity file. There's quality assurance. It's not illegal. Right. You're not getting viruses and right. malware onto your computer and stuff like that. Well, also, uh, Jobs had the advantage of I think the labels first tried um, to two sets of labels grouped together and tried to create download stores, but they had. Uh, it, it, I mean, their their labels are in the business of signing artists, and aside from Sony, they're not really technology companies, right? So, be right before that, the major labels had to tried to create something like iTunes. There was two different competing versions of it, but it failed miserably, and it took like somebody like Steve Jobs and Apple that understood the user interface uh, to really put that together. Plus. As an outsider, in a way, Jobs could create a take-it-or-leave-it licensing sort of model, right? You know, this, is, this is how much a song is going to cost, take-it-or-leave-it, where the labels had some fiduciary responsibility to their own artists, right? Um, and they had, you know, a label is just a basket of all these individual contracts with artists. It was very difficult for them I think to put together something 
um, like what Steve Jobs did, you know. Steve Jobs just wanted to be in the business of distributing the music, whereas labels were hampered by their relationships to artists and stuff like that. So let's take Kerosene Hat, the yeah. CD from 1993, was it? Do you right. remember what in the salad days the, the pay-through, the pass-through to you and the other band members would have been on, say, a $15, $16 CD? Yeah, sure. It was probably... Um, uh, well, you have to cal- you have to calculate advances into that, um, but uh, let the, well it's cal- always calculated at wholesale. So probably about two sixty seven per record. I'm just funny. I knew you were going to ask this question, so I went oh, back and looked at so it. So then, okay, apples, apples, <laughs> so about apples. two two sixty seven per album, counting the mechanical royalties. And then, did you find that most people would follow through, say, uh, when iTunes was in its heyday, and download the entirety of Kerosene Hat on iTunes, or were they just going for the two or three songs that they wanted to cherry pick? For us, I think this varies artist to artist, but for us, we got mostly album downloads Mm. at first. Um, I know that since that time in the early days, since that time, people have become more single oriented. Sure. And I know that breaking up the album into individual tracks has allowed people to just sort of cherry pick which songs they want. So if we took low specifically on Spotify, Let's say, what, 17 million streams, 18 million streams. Do you know what you've earned just from that hit track in in, in its streaming incarnation? Uh, uh, If you're saying low on Spotify, yeah. um, Well, I'd have to to punch it. It's the ballpark. Let's say 17 million streams. Yeah, so we would go... um, It varies quarter to quarter because there's a floating... It's a percentage of revenue, but... uh, did you say 17 million streams? Yeah. I haven't even looked to see what's on there. Well, does one pay better Times than the other? Point. Oh, yeah. That's approximately, the 17 million streams is approximately $85,000 to all rights holders. Okay. So that would be um, the record label, the music publisher, and then the artist royalty is carved out of the record label share. And then songwriters have a separate allotment. So let's let's talk. But eighty five thousand dollars is the total number that needs to be broken up. Yeah, I would say about um, twenty two thousand of that goes to the members of the band and all the songwriters. So was there ability to push back? I mean, I'd like you to get into the conversation of your your case against Spotify and kind of what it did wrong. Spotify, you, you know, it's now a public company. It had a blockbuster IPO. Um, they are losing money hand over fist because they say that they need to pay out the bulk of the money they take in from paid subscriptions and advertising, whatever it is, back to artists. It's extremely expensive for them to scale and hit a moment of um, you know, escape velocity where they can mm. kind of profitably do this. That it's by definition at the very outset a hugely money losing business. So don't try to hit us up for money. We're we're losing money too. Right. What do you say to that? Well, free market my belief in just that free markets actually will solve the problem. Um, if artists, uh, well, first of all, let's let's look at, let's look at whether they are paying too much or too little. Uh, most major labels have deals, and okay, so so most major labels also distribute the independents, right? So whatever their deal is, the independents are going to have approximately the same deal. So about 50 to 54% of gross revenue from the streaming services goes 
to the recording owners. And then songwriters get, say, another about 12.4%. So you're looking in somewhere in the range of, uh, you know, somewhere in between 62 and 67% of the revenue is going to the rights holders. So that leaves them with a margin of over 30, 30%. Spotify. That's, yeah, Spotify. That. Should How is be. it at Apple now that Apple's largely evolved away from the iTunes model to Apple Music, where you're kind of streaming music off of the app? Well, Apple doesn't now. Apple pays approximately twice as much, but that has to do with the fact that Apple doesn't have a free tier, right? So um, that percentage of revenue I just talked about is based on a s- subscription only, not on ad revenue, mm-hmm. right? So Apple is um, pays more, but also remember Apple can. Um, I mean, I sort of we all have a sort of love hate relationship with Apple um, as artists because they pay more, which we like. But at the same time, um, you know, they're they're in the business of selling handsets and other hardware and you know, AirPods and Apple Watches and stuff like that. And so music is kind of a loss leader for sure. them, right? And um, Google, with their platform, they're in the business of, you know, essentially data harvesting so they can target their advertising, right? Um, Spotify stands alone, and I'm pessimistic about their ability to survive standing alone. And again, um, I meant to say, actually, artists have a love-hate relationship with Spotify. In one way, we don't like, I said Apple, I didn't mean to say that. Artists have a love-hate relationship with Spotify because in one way, we don't like that they pay lower fees than something like Apple. But in another way, we want them to survive and be competitors. Um, It's better if you're selling a product that you have a lot of people, a lot of different companies to sell it to. And so, you know... People like myself are concerned if only the Apples and the Googles can survive in the music streaming business and the standalone platforms like Spotify, um, Rhapsody, and Tidal can't survive. You know, that's just bad for artists. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to David Lowry of the band Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. He's now lecturer of music business at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. He blogs at Tricordis, where he writes about artists' rights. He's testified on Capitol Hill. I have a question because you've now cast a wider net. It used to be looking at the world in terms of, I mean, I don't know how much people talk about Pandora anymore. Remember Rhapsody mm-hmm, right. back in the day and the the, the, the file sharing services in Kazaa? Um, if an artist seems to have the clout, why can't the artist pit one of these guys against the other one? I would think Apple Music would be very worried about Spotify, would be very worried about Amazon Music, and Amazon being the ultimate content loss leader of all. I mean, they're not getting judged that on that. True. You think they could just throw that in. So why isn't someone like you able to come in and say, hey, I have these really bespoke sessions that I'm actually burning on a CD. I'm actually hand painting the mm. covers myself and selling them at concerts for 25 bucks. I'll give them to you, you know, make them bid for you. And have the stuff that's the non-commodity track, the non-studio session. Is that is that even possible? Does the artist have that? Well, um, it's it's difficult because um, I don't think a streaming service. I don't have enough clout for a streaming service to see the advantage of cutting a 
a, a direct deal with me and having an exclusive on my music. However, you have seen some of the bigger artists put out exclusives with a single streaming service that the streaming service will have for a few months. And it must somehow be very profitable for the artists to do that. And it must help the streaming services in a way. I see Apple, um, who, who did Apple, did, didn't Apple do an exclusive with Frank Ocean and uh, Chance the Rapper? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Taylor those are Swift correct. Taylor played right? them very deftly against each other and yeah. withholding stuff. So if you have enough clout, yes, you could get more than just sort of the pre-packaged take-it-or-leave-it deal with a streaming service and get more money. But they're never going to do anything like that with somebody like me. However, there are plenty of options for somebody like me who's like sort of a niche artist with a cult following Um you know, we forget the promise of the internet was disintermediation, selling directly to our fans. Um, you, we can still do that, and, and that's exactly what I did with the uh, with my last recording. What I did is I just uh, I wanted to do an autobiographical project, and I realized that um, really, if I was going to do an autobiographical project, it was probably just me with an acoustic guitar and just singing, right? So it's a very easy record to record in a way, tech, from a technical viewpoint. And then I thought about it. I go, you know what I'm going to do is I'm not actually going to put it on the streaming services because I think this is a niche product. I think this appeals just to my fans. I already have their email addresses. A lot of times I have their um, mobile number to send them an SMS, you know, SMS a text, sure. right? And so I just sold this directly through our website. What is it, a protected MP3? Is it a CD? No, it's a CD. Who has a, a CD burner anymore? You'd be surprised. Everybody has them. <laughs> I mean, I got a new MacBook. It doesn't even have a USB drive. If you wanted I, to sell me a you know, DMV, like protected uh, USB drive with the MP3s in it that I couldn't share, I mean, I would have to go around town. I can't find a printer anymore. <laughs> well, um, what I did, well, first of all, the whole point of doing this was this is a niche product and by selling a thousand copies at $25 which you know I just said if you don't want to buy it you don't have to it's a free market um, I made the equivalent of what I would have I would have had to get 71 million streams on YouTube or 7 million on Spotify or about 4 million on Apple to make that much money, right? Now look, just because I sell the limited edition CD and it's just sort of a niche product that I put out there to the fans doesn't mean I can later doesn't mean I can't later put it on the streaming services and make it widely available to everybody else. But to me this was a no-brainer. If you're a niche artist, why don't you sell first do it, window it like movies do. Are. Sure. Like first it's on it's in theaters on a limited number of screens right now. So I just sold it at shows and off the website for five or six weeks. Um, it brings to mind the initial hustle when I think about the title of the album, uh, Kerosene Hat. Is it true, I don't know if the story's apocryphal, that you guys were living like, I don't know, in a shotgun shack or a flat or something, and there was a jury rig kerosene heater, and the person who had to go and fill the thing at the gas station had to wear the kerosene hat? Yeah, me and Johnny lived in uh, Oregon Hill in one of those original, like, old, like, you know, like that was a factory town. I guess it was the sort of cheap row houses that they threw up um, um, in that neighborhood in the, I don't know, when they were done in like the 1880s or something like that. Um, and yeah, the only heater in there was a, was a kerosene heater. So if we started to run out of heat in the middle of the night, somebody had to put on the hat, the 
cloth hat with the ear flaps and stuff like that. We called it the kerosene hat. Yeah. When did you guys make your first buck? Realize that you could make a commercial go of this? Well, um, it started in Camper Van Beethoven in 1985. We put out an album. We recorded it for, I think it was $480, something like that. <laughs> um, which is probably, you know, about 1500 now, but I don't know. Uh, still, it's very little money. And uh, we just sort of made a cassette that we were selling at shows from it. And uh, But we were, you know... People seemed to like it. Uh, we had a friend who pressed up records with his own letterpress. He made the album covers, right? And so he put out the album. And uh, we started getting, you know, it was a really limited edition, but we started getting orders for it. And one of the things um, that happened was I, I knew somebody who worked for this record label called SST, which is an important indie punk rock label in L.A., and he was the promotions person there. And he said, hey, I talked to him for a while. I was like, well, should I send this record out? You know, who should I send it to and stuff? He goes, why don't you just come down to my office and I'll let you copy my Rolodex. Right? Remember, there's no computers, wow. right? Yeah. So I bought two legal pads with me and I just kind of sat in his office and flipped through the Rolodex and he would he would um, pull some out and go, no, no. This so guy. are you guys dubbing mixtapes and sending them off to... Well, no, we actually DJs? sent out the vinyl, the vinyl. right? Because right? you kind of had to send out vinyl for anybody to take you seriously, right? Why wouldn't an AOR person or a DJ want to hear it in his car back in the day? They looked at it as sort of a hurdle that I if see. you got over this hurdle... Then um, to actually press up vinyl, then we'll take You're you legit, seriously. I mean, you could get people listen to your cassettes every once in a while, but uh, yeah. but you know what what happened was is I sent three copies to the BBC in London, and my cousins <laughs> half my family's English, and my cousin had randomly imparted this little fact to me that turned out to be key. He said you couldn't just that if you sent a album he played in a band and he somehow knew this if you sent an album to the bbc you had to send it directly to the djs and you had to write a personal note mm. and it might even have been a handwritten personal note you couldn't just copy a note or something like that i don't remember what it was so i wrote handwritten notes to three bbc djs and i don't know six weeks after i did that i get the equivalent of the all caps text Dear or sir. email right that my 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 cousin is saying uh saying they're playing you on the bbc you know like anyway what was the break i mean take me to the backstory of low and the video and mtv stardom and everything i i think back to 1993 that song reminds me of 93 well the break is, I mean, we had had a lot of smaller breaks that led up to that. We had gotten songs on the radio with Camper and Cracker, just never really on national mainstream radio. Well, I don't know. The song Teen Angst actually was pretty successful for Cracker before that. The main thing that happens with Low is that, um, and this is why in the music business you can never predict things because there's, mm. there's, there's like... Well, when when Camper Van Beethoven had a minor alternative rock hit in 1989 with pictures of Matchstick Men, there were like about 30 to 40 alternative rock stations in North America. 
when Cracker puts out low, there's like two or three hundred, mm. and they cover a much broader audience, right? Now, so in a weird way, we didn't break through to a new format or really get like like our profile in that radio demographic wasn't necessarily higher. It's just that that radio demographic meet, met, met so many, uh, you know, it, the audience was millions of people now instead of sort of hundreds of thousands of people, right? And that's where the big break comes in for us, right? It's just uh, large global economic forces at work, Right. That's that's how you know. I mean, this we, is all pre-clear channel consolidation. Well, of the it's FM beginning, dial. so that's why that kind of stuff happens, right? I see. Suddenly, one radio DJ in the alternative rock format, which is maybe still called modern rock, might be programming five or six radio stations. So, and these were the people that were accustomed already to playing Camper Van Beethoven when they were the lone alternative rock station in all of Michigan, right? Sure. Now they're programming maybe six or seven stations, right? So in a lot of ways, you know, like our us breaking through had less to do with the song than sort of these greater forces at work. What's your relationship with FM radio now, college radio? I mean, if I'm a if I'm a college kid, I imagine that it's decidedly on demand. You, you know, we're, we're not far from VC, VCU. You see these kids crossing the street. They have their AirPods on. Uh, it's, it, you know, where, where are you getting exposed to the kind of things? Like I'm thinking, you know, REM and, mm. you know, in Athens back in its day and these bands that were forged, you know, in the crucible of, of mm-hmm. college radio. Does that even exist anymore? It, it actually does. I have students that work at the college radio stations, but there's not really very many people listening to those college radio stations. However, those, the group of DJs at a college radio station are sort of a little network of tastemakers within the college. And I don't know if it's just them sharing things on social media or if they make Spotify playlists that they share or whatever. I still see bands work college radio. I mean, you can stream at least university. as a social group. You or can something. stream yeah. University of Michigan's, you know, radio from your car if you're in San Antonio yeah. or somewhere else. I mean, I, I wonder though if people actually do go to the FM dial. You saw what happened at Clear Channel and iHeartRadio mm-hmm. and the financial distress. I don't know mm-hmm. if that gives you any sort yeah. of sh- Schadenfreudic, you know, joy <laughs> that the consolidator turned into the consolidated. Uh, yeah. But everything seems up for grabs right now. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I mean, what what I tell my students is like, there are no real rules in the music business right now. And when there are rules, if we go through periods where there are kind of rules, they're likely not to to be the rules for very long. I mean, college radio was a disruptive force to uh, commercial FM radio at one point, right? I mean... Uh, one of the things that's happening, one of the reasons that you could get played on college radio was because the major labels didn't bother sending their promotional teams to those stations. So nobody was doing that. And it later, college radio sort of got homogenized to a certain extent, not completely like commercial radio, after um, record companies figured out, oh, we can promote and break records through college radio. And REM was the first example of that. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to David Lowry, rocker David Lowry, alt-rocker, modern rocker, whatever you want to call him, professor, doctor, lecturer of music business at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. He's in the band's Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. Uh, I'm curious, when I've heard your other interviews, there seems to be this amorphous big tech thing. I think in Wall Street they call him. And by the way, you're experienced as a as an investor, too. I mean, right. a quant. I don't even know if we'll have time to get there, but... Um, the five horsemen of tech, they call them. And I don't even know how to look at a Google, which IPO'd in 2004, which was a search engine. They wanted mm. to make all the world's data available to everyone. Mm. They had this don't be evil admonition internally. But now I see YouTube. There are people who don't pay for streaming subscriptions mm. and go and stream entire albums in HD on YouTube. Um, Facebook is a whole other player, which has Instagram. Uh, you might be able to post, you know, um, whether you can cross post MP3s is a whole other questionable thing. How do you look at a SoundCloud? Um, who are the players out there that are kind of congealing into, uh, you know, they've become kind of the, you, you, you gave the speech and kind of the old boss versus the new boss. And we shouldn't necessarily be giddy about the new bosses. Right. So the new boss, if we allow me this little. Please. Sort of this way of simplifying it. So the new boss would be the digital platforms through which pretty much all music is distributed, right? Um, so, so what was cool for me, and this is something I would never want to take back, is that it used to be that somehow there was some gatekeeper on some level that you had to go through to distribute your music to your fans. We don't have that anymore. And that's opened up, like, so much creatively, right? I think there's probably more music out there now than there ever was and just a lot of really creative stuff going on. That's because, you know, all of these platforms like YouTube, Spotify, whatever, they're, they'll take all comers, right? And you can spread your music out there. The problem is, is that the revenue hasn't really followed, right? So we're getting, we're being, cons- you know, especially sort of the middle class artists um, their music is wide, our, especially the middle class artists, our music is widely available, probably more available than it ever was, you know, globally. But the revenue hasn't really followed. And a lot of that has to do with the, the structure of how the digital music business, uh, the, the licensing structure of the digital music business versus the licensing structure of, of what was the old analog gatekeeper mm music business. So I posed this question back in 2012 at San Francisco Music Tech, which was, is the new boss worse than the old boss, question mark, right? And I go through it and I attempt to show, I can't really show it scientifically because I don't have access to everybody's data, but I attempt to show that essentially um, the share of revenue that trickles to artists is lower than it was under the old analog system, except for in certain cases, right? And a process of disintermediation was then sort of swamped by a process, I don't even know what to call it, re-disintermediation, <laughs> re-intermediation? Um, I, I don't know what to call it, right? What do you Whereby say to the... the Instead of dealing directly where you were selling directly to your fans and cutting out the middlemen, the middlemen were back big time. 
What do you what do you say to the guy that laments that does not miss the consumer paying fifteen dollars for a CD at Peaches at Tower at Camelot Music at all of these departed right. chains? That well, that wasn't that wasn't equilibrium either. I mean, if you're getting paid too little right now, maybe there was too much waste, uh, too much. You know, the retailers were getting a big cut of that box. Well, that well, the, I would say that indicts the digital system even more than because, um, I mean, you got to figure like somebody like you know, a peaches or strawberries or one of these old chains, the warehouse or something like that. They got to deal with real estate. They have to deal with, you know, physical advertising, employees, utilities, shoplifting that there's all this overhead. Right. Uh, And, and so when all that overhead was ripped away, shouldn't we have got more money as artists? Right. Right. And we kind of didn't now, now there's, there's, First of all, I, I'm actually people don't. I think people don't understand me. I'm an optimist. It's just it's more of a kind of a glacial optimist. Mm. Um, I don't think that this system we have right now will stand with smaller artists like being paid so little for their work or having. Okay, but I think, and there, I think it's more like. You know, it's not going to sort itself out in two years or five years. I'm not even sure if it's going to sort itself out in 10 years. I'm looking more at like a horizon of 25 years. But this this is going co- to sort this is itself coldly out comforting something. for the college band. It's like you could say you all do it for exposure until you're blue in the face. If you can never make a living off of it, it's always going to remain a side gig. I, I, I think to put the genie back in the bottle whereby artists have stronger control over their intellectual property is a gen- it's going to take a generation to fix that. Tell me what you're doing in the trenches like you and your wife I'm told at the Broadberry she's selling merch. You know there uh, is a hustle involved in this. There uh, is an element of kind of fighting back. We said that you know you're out there act- actively burning CDs. There's a there's a gorgeous kind of trolling element to being out there with a with a limited edition CD in the year oh, 2019. Yeah. yeah. Well, that you love telling us that story. Tell us more about how you still eke out revenue and relevance and fan engagement in this in this period of kind of the fleeting stream. Well, we did, we did a couple things uh, to um, disintermediate, you know, go back to the dis- disintermediation, the original promise of the internet. I've lost track of the intermediations already. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, one, we did our own festival, and we sell the the tickets directly. We don't use any middleman. It's just straight through mm-hmm. our website directly to our fans. And the second thing, we've been experimenting with these little projects like whereby I sell, I make an album. There's a thousand copies of it, and we sell it directly to our fans um, on CD. Um, and no promotion, no nothing, except for the fact that um, you know, because I didn't do any promotion, because I didn't make a big deal of it, because I just sort of went directly to our fans and say little things like, uh, well, this is the equivalent of 71 million streams on YouTube financially. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's sort of a trolling element. There's a little bit of high concept promotion to what, what I'm doing with that. But You're the absolutely fan, right. But the, the fans, fans love, love it. You and they're part of the conspiracy. You know, they're kind of part of they're in on it i gotta find a cd burner i gotta find a way to get mp3s onto my iphone well i forgot how to do well no but this is um 
this is what some of the fans said. It's like, well, I actually don't have a CD player. And I said, well, you guys will figure it out, won't you? And they kind of laughed at this. They made jokes about it. Go, actually, we will figure it out. And then some people were like, well, I'm not going to be at any of those shows. So how? And they might sell out before I get to any of those shows. I was like, you guys will figure it out. Here's won't what you? we're here's so what I kind of put me. the burden back on to the. To go to lecture, to go to business of music lecture, I think that we're at this brink of login fatigue in this country. Like, right. suppose there was a Lowry app, Lowry 5. No, I don't that's know. not going to... But we, your your fans, like, would get that walled garden. They'd get performances that nobody else would have. But how many logins do we need? I mean, you're seeing it at the cord-cutting level, right? Mm-hmm. You were already, like, you look at the cable companies, and the cable box has been disrupted. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've gone to CBS TV and Netflix and Apple TV and BBC America, and you binge on all these little apps on your Roku mm-hmm. or your Apple TV. Is that even possible with true fans, like patrons of the art, the way certain people, like 50 people, support the ballet in a community? If you have your hardcore fans that are willing to fund you and subsidize you, you will build a beautiful walled garden for them. Well, I don't I don't even know if you necessarily have to build so much of a walled garden or if you just look at it more like what the movie business or, you know, the premium uh, streaming service do, which is like, first, it's only available here. You know, it's on limited screens, you know, in so many cities. And we might take it to wider screens. And now we've got it on, you know, pay-per-view and stuff like that. I don't... The problem with music is people expect if they log into something, they want all music. Because, you know, the radio, you could just go through the dial. So we're trained as consumers, just go through the dial and find out, find what it is you're looking for, or go to the record store and get what you're looking for. So it's better to look at it as the music business and do what we call windowing. I mean, do it like, it's better to look at it like the movie business and do what the movie business calls windowing. Right, you just sort of dribble it out, and you take advantage of price discriminations. Whereas your hardcore fans are more willing to pay a higher price is the, and to log is in. Is the movie business a model though right now? If you look at movie theaters, well, no, because but the but the you know the the walled gardens of things like HBO and uh, they're having their golden Netflix. era. Yeah, we're in a golden era of television, and there's a lot of. You know, ABC, even in the free over-the-air stuff, ABC stuff is just on ABC in their app for a while. And then maybe it's on Hulu later. And then maybe it's on Netflix later and stuff like that. So so, so it's more like the streaming uh, television business is more the model. Close us out in the few minutes we have left with you before you pick up the guitar. Okay. Your hopes, aspirations, what's going to be new from you in in the autumn and in 2020? Um, well, this sort of auto, this autobiographical CD project that I'm on, I want to put out this. I only did the years uh, 1963 through 1989. <laughs> so I'm going to do the second edition, sort of the modern era. Uh, I'll put that out somewhere in the next year. And I'm 2020 is um, we've declared it the international year of Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. We haven't been um, overseas, aside from an occasional show in Canada, in a number of years. So we're and I gotta ask you, go how many how many mixed CDs or streams do you field from people who kind of accost you either at the university? Oh, a professor has office hours. He could be my big break. Do people bring music to you and try to? At the university, yeah, usually at the rainmaker. end of the semester. <laughs> at the end of the semester, because. 
I, I know they're a little they're a little bit afraid to do it. But you know, I have I have students in my classes right now that regionally sell out small theaters. Wow. You know, I have a lot of students that are out there doing it, you know. How many kids are in the class? Um I have uh, four classes a semester, uh, two sections of a – I have about 300 students And every you're about semester. to become a senior lecturer. We'll withhold Hopefully that Hopefully become a senior lecturer. I have to be voted on, but I hope – Are you on tenure track? No, nah, in the business school, you can be – that's – I'm on a different track. I'm like professionally qualified and um, academically and qualified. And what was the title of your dissertation? I got to ask you. My dissertation was uh, Peer versus Peer, an examination of the controversy surrounding the copyright – I've got to get this right – the Copyright Protection Provisions in the Higher Education Authority Act of 2008. Oh, my God. I got a paper download <laughs> for that? <laughs> it's long. It's like 400 pages. David Lowry, you are the man. I've been bugging okay. you for five years to come on this show. You're a, a Richmond legend, a regional legend. They love you in Georgia, a, a true torchbearer for artists' rights. Uh, you are always welcome on this show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Full disclosure, our engineer today is Jeff McManus at Rainmaker. Special thanks to Kristen O'Connor and Lucas Crost and his merry crew at The Branching, including Jason Parks, Alec Gary, and Andrew Uveroff. Reminder, full disclosure and not a surf, Sunday, November 10th at the National in Richmond. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Or I can just withhold it all and sell it to you for a cool 25 bucks. <laughs> just One Rose knows your name, David Lowry. The stage is yours. Thank you. A cigarettes and carrot juice and get yourself a new tattoo for those sleeveless days of June I'm sitting on the cafe Zinner steps with a book I haven't started yet or watching all the world go by and could I take you out I'll be yours without a doubt that big dipper And if the sound of this It frightens you We could play it real cool And act somewhat indifferent And hey June Why'd you have to come Why'd you have to come around So soon I wasn't ready for all this nature The terrible green, green grass And violent blooms of flower dresses And afternoons that make me sleepy But we could wait a while for we push that dull turnstile into the passage
where thousands they have tread and others sometimes fled before their turn came We could wait our lives Before chance arrived For the passage From the top you can see Monterey Or think about San Jose Though I know it's not that pleasant Jim, a Kerouac, brother of the famous Jack, or so he likes to say, lucky bastard. He's sitting on the cafe, Zinner steps with a girl I'm not over yet, watching all the world go by. Boy, you're looking bad Did I make you feel that sad? I'm honestly flattered But if she asks me out I'll be hers without a doubt I'm that big dipper Cigarettes and carrot juice and get yourself a new tattoo for those sleepless days of June. I'm sitting on the cafe, Zinner steps. I haven't got the courage yet. I haven't got the courage yet. I haven't got the courage yet I remember waking up To the bright sunlight Streaming through the blinds And from the courtyard rose Sevianas and American rock and roll My father in his Sunday best Played records for his friends I tasted sangria From a half full cup And my sister slapped Followed on the swelling crowd to the Plaza de Toros. Then come the picadors. The crowd gets to their feet and roars. Pa, 
behind his back a gleaming sword. Papa, do they really kill the bull? And in the ancient streets of the old city comes a marching crowd in unison. They chant and sing, hold their placards in the air. The shopkeepers motion quick, come inside. Then they roll the shutters down, and the shots ring out. The men run and shout, and the old man gives me a coke. We emerge at dusk. And the water in the street was pink. Papa, do they really kill the bull? Then I thought I saw a matador behind his back, a gleaming sword. Papa, do they really kill? Dug a hole in the ground, as boys often do, and we found a bandolier and a German-made hand grenade from the Spanish Civil War. Older boys come along, say, "Go back in the wheat. Too much danger to be here." And the Romany men. Looked on holding piles of sheets and my mother's blue-green blouse. Then came the bass and peas. The Romany slid back into the wheat. Papa, do they really kill the bull? And I thought I saw the matador. Behind his back, a gleaming sword. Papa, do they really kill the bull? And we will fight you from the mountains, and we will fight you in the streets, and we will fight you in the valleys. You cannot take what isn't yours, and we will fight your goons and lawyers, and we will fight your Pinkertons. And we will fight your bought-off congressmen. You cannot take what isn't yours. So la la da la da 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 la da la da la da 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 la da 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 da. 
And we will take you from your mansions We'll burn your towers to the ground And we will reap the whirlwind that you've sown You cannot take what isn't yours So la la da la da 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 la da la da la da 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 la da 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 and we will fight you from our houses and we will fight you in the streets and we will fight you in the valleys you cannot take what isn't yours no you can't take what isn't yours every day i get up and pray to job number clocks by exactly one Everybody's coming home for lunch these days Last night there were skinheads on my lawn Take the skinheads bowling Take them bowling Take the skinheads bowling Take them bowling some people say the bowling alleys copic lanes. Some people say the bowling alleys all look the same. There's no line that goes here that rhymes with anything. Had a dream last night, but I forget what it was. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. Had a dream last night about you, my friend. Had a dream, want to sleep next to plastic. I had a dream, want to lick your knees. Had a dream, is about nothing. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. 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 Take the